Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, I'm talking to John and John, the founders of the Craft Gin Club. It's one of the coolest artisan subscription services in the UK and now actually a large business. Just like me, the guys went on to Dragon's Den and I love how the business is still entirely powered by content marketing. In today's episode, we're speaking about how they spotted the trend of premiumization of gin and liquor early, how they bootstrapped the business to a huge size today with almost no funding, and how they think about team and culture. So really, really excited to have you both on today, uh, talking about the huge success you had building the Craft Gin Club. Um, but before we talk about Dragon's Den and how you guys met, I just want to briefly hear, John, where you guys grew up. John, John B., do you want to start? Sure. I'm initially from the States, where I spent uh, more or less the first 20 years or so of my life. Family's all American and everything, but uh, I did a year abroad in France, in, in Strasbourg, when I was in college and kind of never looked back at Europe. And uh, outside some time spent in Mexico, I've been in Europe quite a bit, primarily in France and a bit in Spain, which we'll tell you about in a, in a little bit. And uh, now five years in the UK. Where in the US did you grow up? Massachusetts. About an hour and a half from Boston. I mean, this is such a huge generalization, but I guess like how is how is the UK different than back in the US? And how has it informed you having lived in so many countries and having moved around so much? I suppose the strange thing is I've never really lived in America as an adult, as it were. So I've never had a professional job in the States. So uh, I'd say being 20 years out, my vision of the States is probably a little bit uh, outdated at this point, considering all that's happened over the past 20 years. I mean, certainly growing up anywhere will instill you with the, the values and of that, of that area where you, where you grow up. So uh, in that case, I suppose from a business perspective, the UK and the US are much more similar than uh, approaching business from a continental perspective. Yeah, great point. And John H., um, where where did you grow up? Nothing quite so glamorous. So my hometown's uh, Stoke-on-Trent, which is nice. in Staffordshire, the potteries as it's, as it's known. So uh, a bit more of a, a straightforward, uh, I guess, location for, for a UK entrepreneur. But I have done my fair share uh, of stints out of the country. I've lived in uh, the south of France for a while. I obviously lived in, in Madrid. I've spent time in the States as well. So 
Uh, I've been around, but I moved to London probably around about when I was 22, so just after university, I think a well-trodden path. I've been uh, down in and around London uh, ever since, apart from those stints abroad. And then I'm keen to kind of hear what you studied and um, what the first job was like. So I guess growing up, I was I was always quite keen on on technology, on uh, whether that was sort of computers as they were back then. I remember my first computer was a, a Commodore VIC twenty, and I remember <laughs> type, typing out lines of code from a magazine, spend hours and hours doing it. It would never work, but uh, it didn't put me off. I went to university. I read uh, electrical engineering. So I graduated from the University of Nottingham uh, with uh, a master's degree in electrical engineering in the end. So, yeah, I've always been sort of passionate about technology, how things work, but also, I guess, building things uh, has always been part of my makeup. What was your first job then after uni? So my first job uh, was working for what was then Fujitsu Consulting. So I graduated in 98, which was a great time to graduate with any kind of software related Uh, degree uh, you know if you could turn a computer on you could pretty much get a job in on the internet and, and that, that that turned out to be the case for me so I my, my first job was building uh, the website for Thomas Cook uh, the the holiday uh, company and we we were the first the team that built the first UK website to take real-time package holiday bookings which was uh, was a big deal back then right How was the culture like? Like, what did you learn about yourself? You know, first job, what excited you? What was the culture like? I guess, what were kind of the learnings back then? I was working in the internet at the same time that the internet was sort of, I guess, coming to life in, in and of itself. So the working style was was still quite old school, I guess. Uh, you know, you turn up at the office, there was a, a staff canteen, there was all that kind of stuff, that that, that big company mindset. Which, which I realized that I didn't enjoy him particularly, but it was it was just part of what went on. So the culture was quite old school uh, in its mindset, but I really enjoyed being around the technology and actually being in in the side of the business, both from a Fujitsu perspective, I guess uh, the company I worked for, but also uh, the client Thomas Cook. Uh, the, you know, the internet was where it was at. And it was the the, the part of their mutual businesses that everyone was most excited about and where the focus was. And, and you know, if, if anything was happening, it was happening there. So it was exciting. Okay, amazing. So like now, 20 years later, you you actually have a direct-to-consumer online business. Um, that's pretty handy, I guess, the experience you had early on. Um, and John, John B., where? how about you? Like, where did you go to uni and what was your first job? I went to a small liberal arts college in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, uh, with a Jesuit link, actually, called College of the Holy Cross, where I um, studied, with, if that's a word you can use, political science, which is basically uh, one of those things that you study when you have no idea what you'd like to do. And uh, uh, But it, it was a very good education, uh, but I'd say just staying in Massachusetts was a little bit stifling for me. So I did take advantage of that opportunity to study abroad with programs that they have in, in the States and in Europe to do exchanges. After uni, I actually signed up for a volunteer program in Mexico. Mm. And so if you really want to get technical, my first job after uni was a precursor to Craft Gin Club because I ended up uh, working the summer in a liquor store, uh, <laughs> serving the the local populace saving up some cash to, to 
go do the volunteer work in Mexico. Um, so uh, learned learned my my booze chops there, I suppose, stocking shelves and making orders and stuff. Nice. And what did you do in Mexico then? Uh, I was down on a, a program uh, that uh, was uh, meant to kind of integrate well, people from another culture into uh, in, into a, a local village. Uh, it wasn't quite a village. It was about a town of about uh, 20,000 people in a very poor part of the country. And we were largely down there to work a little bit on, on human rights. There was uh, uh, quite a lot of cultural problems i'll say in the let's just say when she left the town you didn't want to really be traipsing off into the mountain mountainous areas around there by yourself mm. it was pretty much controlled by drug gangs <laughs> so, so i uh, okay. mm. i i totally relate to that point i lived um in mexicali and calexico for half a year oh, wow. which is you know I, i mean as you know like a tiny border town right at the the US-Mexican border and, you know, 99% of GDP is probably drug and, and human traffic related. Yeah. So it was like a massively fascinating experience seeing people getting busted and like restaurants being shut down because there was a tunnel and people jumping the fence and you literally seeing it in daylight. And it was a crazy, sad experience in many ways. Yeah, it is insane. We, I was in the South, I was in the state of uh, Guerrero, Mm -hmm. uh, quite close to the Oaxacan border, actually, mm -hmm. uh, but in in the mountains. I mean, it was a give you an, a, an idea. It was about 150, uh, I think it was 150 miles from Mexico City. It was a six hour drive, a six and a half hour drive. You know that type of terrain to get down there. So it was, yeah, quite a ways. Fascinating. So you both grew up in a very, very international way. Jumping ahead slightly, at, at some point in your career, you got bored, you decided to do an MBA, um, or you got more ambitious and you, I don't know, you want wanted to accelerate the career or, or start a company, I don't know. But um, so what was the decision-making process? Like you, John B., you decided at some point to um, go to Madrid, do an MBA. What was that like, I guess, before, before joining? Oh, I haven't thought about this in a while, but I moved to Paris permanently in about, it was 2004, and I ended up uh, just with a student visa and worked my way into an internship. I turned it into a job, which allowed me to get all the legals uh, to, to stay in the country. And I landed a job with a really fascinating uh, association. For me, it was old school media. It was called the World Association of Newspapers. So it was a, a trade <laughs> association for the global newspaper industry. And uh, we held conferences all around the world. And uh, as any trade association does, you know, lobby for the industry and do research. And uh, we would take, uh, do exchanges. So bring uh, editors in chief from various papers around the world to go visit other papers around the world and share trade secrets. So I got to travel quite a lot in that job, which was uh, amazing. But at the same time, it was a, a nonprofit and quite poorly run as a business. And I, I saw myself, uh, particularly around the time of the internet, watching it devastate that industry so quickly. Mm. Got really interested on the business side of things, both from watching that industry suffer and also the way that the company I was working at was poorly run. And I kind of put two and two together there and said, well, I should probably learn some practical skills uh, so that um, I don't watch uh, uh, an entire industry and the company I work for go to pot. 
so that was my trigger to go study business for a year. And that's why I decided to do the MBA uh, and ended up in Spain because it was a really good program at the IE Business School. Um, mm. had a, a large focus on entrepreneurialism, which I knew I was really interested in, uh, specifically because a lot of the pain that the newspaper industry uh, went through was down to all these entrepreneurs uh, launching really successful businesses that basically destroyed business models that had been entrenched for decades uh, and very profitable business models. Uh, and mm. all of a sudden there was no profit there. So uh, yeah, IE Business School is a really good, really good experience down there, the way that they integrate entrepreneurialism into every aspect of business. And that's where I got to meet John too. So uh, uh, so, so um, doubly uh, uh, amazing experience. Amazing. And John, John, how do how did you decide on on Madrid um, and studying for an MBA? I think after that first job, I I spent many years, I guess, quite happy years uh, as a as a software engineer, focusing on on internet projects. But you know, I was building things for a living and enjoying it a lot. But I, I eventually ended up where I think all all good software engineers in London go to die, uh, working in the city, uh, writing, you know, quite well paid, but but probably not that interesting risk software. And, you know, decided that there's hopefully a little bit more to life, really wanted to go on a, on a different journey where rather than building, I guess, systems and processes, I, I would be building a company and decided that an MBA would be a, a good segue into that, that sort of career change. But also, you know, I think, Being honest, I was ready for uh, to take a year out of of working life and go and live somewhere different. Uh, Madrid was a city I'd visited quite a few times. It was sort of a favourite city of mine, and I think both John and I love uh, love to eat and drink well. Uh, and Madrid is a city that does that does that very very well. I think it's fair to say. Uh, I don't know if it's a city you've you've, you've visited, Timo, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, and it had a good school there in IE, so it was. Uh, I guess made it to the top of the top of the list of my choices, and yeah, it turned out to be a, a great experience, both educationally, uh, but also from a uh, just an experience of living abroad and, and, and really enjoying Madrid uh, as a town. It's a wonderful place. Yeah, and I, I can just echo your point on food. I lived in Valencia for I think four months in 2007, so like a really long time ago. But it was hugely fun. I, I worked like crazy, but culturally and from a food perspective it was super super fun it's your home of paella you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um and color travel like like lots of great architects and it's a really fun place okay so you guys both started your mbas great business school lots of my friends went there super fun how did you meet then and i guess when was the first time you started discussing either gin or starting a business i don't know which one came first john b talk me through that Sure. John and I ended up in the same class uh, in the MBA. So we probably spent, what was it, John, the first nine months or so of the program, basically sitting right next to each other, more or less. I guess over that time, we talked quite a lot, discussed quite a lot. And we, we did end up leaving business school with a soft promise to do something together someday. So it wasn't gin related from the get-go, but it was more, yeah, let's, we both had similar ideas and probably realized some complementary skills as well. And just, we went our separate ways, uh, we kept in touch uh, and, but, but definitely had some sort of promise to do something together. Amazing. And then, so how did the idea emerge? 
the craft gin club idea. Well, yeah, yeah. John, do you want to tell that story? Obviously, uh, influenced in Spain because of the reinvention of the gin and tonic. While we were actually experiencing that, while we were in Spain with the big Copa Balone glasses and uh, mm. the artistry of making it with the the, the, the pour and the at the bar and the, the garnishes and making it look like a very attractive thing to hold in your hand mm. uh, when you start the party at one. 1 a.m. in the morning in Spain. Yeah. But, <laughs> couldn't do, yeah, couldn't we, do that anymore. But, uh, we, we certainly we certainly did our fair share of, uh, I, I guess, research while we were <laughs> while we were students, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Lots of lots of gin and tonics were had, but I, I guess it got serious around the summer of uh, 2014. John yeah. was over visiting uh, in London. I think we were having drinks in a. It was in a pub, actually, in, in Shepherd's Market in, down in, in Mayfair, if you know it. Mm-hmm. And we, we were, you know, having a few pints and, and a few more and then a few gins and, and sort of shooting around ideas. And I guess the nebulous of Craft Gin Club was really founded on, I guess, three strands that we were trying to pull together that John's already mentioned. We we observed that kind of reinvention of gin as a category uh, and I'm sure you've seen it yourself, Timo, over the past sort of five, six, seven years. Gin has gone from a sort of sleepy, almost forgotten spirit to, to be, you know, the all singing, all dancing star of the show. And that really, that reinvention really has its own in Spain, as John alluded to, that kind of premiumization of the serve, uh, interesting glassware interesting garnish lots of ice and people like fever tree as well were, were driving that premiumization when they came to market so so consumers getting really switched on uh to gin at the same time quite interestingly there was a law change in the uk uh sipsmith down in chiswick uh they became the first new distillery to open in london i think in 200 years and and to do that they had to actually get the law changed to allow for the first time in 200 years small uh, distillers to get a license to distill. So the whole thing that had happened with craft beer and small breweries coming to market hadn't happened in spirits because the laws uh, were written in such a way that, that it sort of pre- prevented that innovation. So they got the laws changed and then that sort of brought about a real kind of boom in in small distillers or startup distillers. Quite often, I think back then, it was people taking, you know, early redundancy or retirement and following their passion. And that passion, I think, in the early days was quite often whiskey, actually. Um, but these distillers were opening opening their businesses and, and figuring out, okay, well, it takes 10 years to make a whiskey. I've got to pay the bills in the meantime. And and turning their, their hand to gin as a, a product that has, I guess, inherent points of differentiation. Every gin is different from every other gin. It's sort of rooted in provenance or recipe, or flavor profile, and it's relatively sort of quick to make, unlike whiskey. So really interesting time that consumers were getting excited about gin at the same time. There was lots of small producers coming to market, but really th- there was a gap uh, and they weren't finding each other, uh, supermarkets. Uh, the big retailers weren't carrying the sort of range of craft gins that they that they do today even. And I think alongside that, we John and I had always been interested in the subscription model and people like Birchbox, et cetera, were, were sort of bringing that to the consumer's mind. Uh, and we sort of knit, knitted those three t- trends together, really. And, and Craft Gin Club was born. Uh, and I think we sent our first box in October 
uh, and incorporated the company in in January 15. Yeah, test box and uh, test box went on yeah, end of October, so it, technically November's dinner of the month 2014, but it was uh, five boxes at that point. And thinking back, actually, John, we probably broke some laws that that <laughs> that are now in place today. The, the way that we did it at first is drop shipping from the distilleries, basically. So we mm-hmm. had to uh, more or less send send our club members addresses to the distilleries for them to pack up the gin mm-hmm. and send it out. Um, so at the beginning, it was just it started really small. So we just figured out what we could do. Uh, John has a uh, would call it the innovation cage. John, remember that one? That's a, a shout back to a long time ago. Um, there you go. Which was essentially figuring out what resources are you actually have to hand, what you can actually do within, what what are your cap- your current capabilities, and working to that. So, for instance, we didn't have any money. Uh, we didn't have any infrastructure. What could we do? We could set up a website. We could set up a Facebook page. Start turning out content. Start trying to engage with with a, with people and create a community. You can set up a newsletter list on Mailchimp for free. At the time, Facebook had a lot of uh, unsold inventory, so there was a lot more organic reach. So your messages could go much further. Uh, so we just started off with really nothing and just started talking to people, uh, aficionados of gin, and um, started signing up a, a few people. Our, our first customers, our first club member signed up uh, at the end of September, I remember, uh, and he's still a, a club member today. Um, nice. Yeah. yeah. Shout Aaron, out to Aaron. Aaron in Northern <laughs> Ireland. Shout out to Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. And uh, uh, yeah, and we, we for the beginning of it, we just sent out the gin uh, with the promise that Behind the scenes, we would do some marketing for the, the distilleries to our growing community. And we, we always wrote a magazine. It was always a, actually at the time, we should get back to the, the basics of it. We, we understood content marketing, which was also still a big trend at the time. But at the time, John was running a B2B content marketing company and uh, me coming from the more journalistic uh, media world uh, understood the power of engaging content as well. So we we took those skills that we'd learned and decided this is going to be a business that's driven by generating content to uh, to engage with community, to create and engage with communities. And it's always been the foundation of the company. We we did write magazines, albeit in a PDF format, until we could get the scale to actually print them. So for each month, each distiller had a, a magazine written about them with a profile and all of those articles would get dissected and posted online as well and shared on the Facebook page. The first hires we made in the company were were all content people too. I believe the first three hires were all uh, to, to churn out content and the biggest team to date is still the content team. So it was it was always, we, we were definitely interested in the subscription business and the growing range of craft distillers that were out there as John mentioned. Uh, but at its foundation was always a, a content-driven business. Mm, I remember the proof of life moment, if you like, was uh, talking about things that that stretch the boundaries of what's legal and what's not. I remember John putting together a, a Facebook post. Uh, it was something like 13 reasons that, that gin makes 
the perfect New Year's detox and we went up online sort of January the, the 2nd or whatever it was. Uh, advertising standards, you're not supposed to uh, <laughs> sort of associate drinking gin with any health benefits. But but we, we were sort of, you know, a bit naive back then. But this post went viral. Uh, I think it was seen by oh. almost almost 2 million people wow. on Facebook. And, and we 10x'd our subscriber base. Wow. Yeah, off the, back, post, off the yeah. back of that yeah, post that John probably knocked up in, well, might be being unkind to you, John, but 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and away it went. And we, we, knew, we knew then we'd got some kind of product market fit, you know, if we could just get out and, and get our, our brand and, and our voice in front of enough people, uh, they would sign up. So it was a real... It was a real launching moment. That did you organically fund the business at the beginning? Did you moonlight? You still had your existing mm -hmm. jobs. How did you do that at the beginning? Funding is a strong yeah. word. I think funding would just be the time we put in, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I, I I always joke to people that we we got sort of seed funding from Richard Branson, but we actually got we actually got a Virgin credit card. Uh, <laughs> that we ran up and had something like 18 month interest free on it. There's a couple of, couple of interest free credit cards was how we started the business. In all honesty, uh, I think I was working for the first six months of the business full time. So it was kind of two, working two jobs. Uh, John had uh, sort of rolled off one contract. So you got more time to spend on it in the early days, but yeah, we, we definitely funded the business organically. Uh, and that's pretty much been the story to date as well. And then uh, in what, like 2016, you guys appeared on Dragon's Den. I was on Dragon's Den in 2013, so a couple of years before you guys. Definitely not my proudest moment. How did you find <laughs> it? Um, there's so many like lights on you and crosses on the floor where you have to stand and like 40 cameras. And, you know, you just know that whatever moment you're most red faced and sweaty, that's what they show on TV. How, how did you find the experience? And obviously you guys did incredibly well. You had four offers, you know, you, um, you, I think one of the dragons, Sarah, uh, invested. How did you find it? John, why don't you start on that one? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a show I, I, I grew up watching, uh, and it's a show I've always been a big fan of. So I, I kind of knew what to expect. I think at a superficial level, just from watching the show so many times. And, and I think John and I, through the whole process, we we over-prepared, uh, which I think was the right thing to do. So so going in there, I knew that we knew our stuff in terms of you know, the questions that always come up around your numbers, your forecasts. Uh, and even if we didn't know the answer, at least we had an answer, if that makes sense. So, so we weren't, <laughs> we weren't going to get caught out by that. And I think that really paid off. I, I think it also helped that, we, we we sort of wheeled in a trolley with some really strong gin and tonics. We were sort of, <laughs> we were sort of late in the day, and uh, I think I think you know they, so much they better really than what I had. I only had like cold food because they didn't allow me to actually heat the food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the gin and tonic did, did the trick, I think. So, uh, but it, it was an experience. We were in there for I guess it's like an hour and a half or just over, and yes. that, that obviously gets edited down to. 12 minutes so you are at the the editor's mercy and i think uh we came out of it pretty well i i i would say uh we were happy with the result and overall the experience was great and i think it made us uh really think about our business for the first time from a sort of external perspective so it made john and i as founders you know really put our heads together and think about what it was we were building and why it made sense through an external lens, I think 
we knew it made sense, but but we'd never really verbalized that in a proper format. Is that fair, John? Yeah, definitely. It, it certainly made us think about getting our thoughts squared away and deciding what we wanted, uh, at least for the, the following 12 to 18 months. You'd have to present some sort of plan, obviously, which when you're running a business uh, when in, in its really early days, you kind of look a couple of weeks down the road. Um, yeah, so it's hard to to think about the the long term, and so that certainly helped us get our numbers right. Um, we, we've always had pretty good reporting, but I suppose that really forced us to start down that journey of of getting dashboards and 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 all of the spreadsheets uh, up and, and investor ready. Yeah, it was a harrowing experience. Also, a bit of a contrary uh, um, uh, realization as to, to what you assume about human nature. So you you just said that we got four out of the five dragons, gave made us an offer, and we also poured them very strong drinks. Ironically, the one that had most of his drink decided not to invest in us. You remember that, John? It was a uh, yeah. It was, maybe, maybe. So we we served them all at the beginning, and John had poured incredibly strong gin and tonics. Now, before that, Magnus and Offer kind of sipped it <laughs> and Nick Jenkins just necked it. We, we yeah. noticed it was like gone in like 20 minutes. The man must have been I, tired. I, I, I think he, he probably knew he was out at that point that, well, I'm, I'm just going to sit here for an hour. So I might as well enjoy the g and yeah. um, It was funny. Nice. It was a... Um, uh, I'd, I'd actually never seen the show prior Um so I didn't have much of a frame of reference. For, so I, I approached it really as a as, as going in front of a uh, an investor panel, which in reality it is. I mean, they're serious business people, and they ask you serious questions. It might not seem as serious on the uh, on TV because it's quite dramatic the way that's that it's edited. But uh, they're very intelligent and successful business people that ask you intelligent questions. Um, so you you have to be prepared. I, I'd say it wasn't. It, wasn't too dissimilar from going out and talking to a to a typical investor. But Timo, you know more about that because since you've you've done a lot, you've taken on a um, you've worked with a lot of investors, shall we say? So you you might have more insight into that. Into no, comparison. I mean I totally agree. Yeah, we I mean we we went on to raise 155, 160 million pounds since Dragon's Den. But it's a very, obviously, it's a very different business. Ours is quite capital intense. You know, we've got factories, a thousand employees now growing to 2000 employees this year. So it's a slightly different, different comparison. Um, And I guess since Dragon's then until today, how has the business grown? Can you give me any indication of how big the business is? I mean, we've we've performed well, I think, since since the get-go. I think year one, sales were... Almost half a million pounds in the first year, and wow, that's amazing! That that gave us great confidence that we we're on the right track. I think we've just finished our sixth year, and sales were just shy of twenty-five million, um, which is great. Wow, that's fantastic! Well done, guys! Congratulations! I mean, organically so, yeah. growing to that level is is amazing. Yeah, there's, there, I mean, there's been a bit of funding along the way. We obviously took uh, some funding from. Dragon's Den, £75,000, but really what we took from Dragon's Den was a big uplift in, I guess, public awareness, awareness yeah. just by being on BBC BBC Two primetime. Uh, we also managed to form our advisory board and all that important stuff 
as well. But 2019, the end of 2019, we, we placed a, a bond uh, with our customers. So it, the world's wow. first gin, gin bond. Uh, <laughs> we, we, you can invest in the company and we receive interest paid in gin, which uh, raised 1.6 million pounds. Wow, uh, that's amazing. Love so, that. Yeah, that was it was fun, you know, it allowed our customers to sort of get involved and, and become part of the journey and it allowed us to sort of raise some money to take the business to the next level. So, yeah, we're now 135,000 active subscribers and uh, I think that makes us the biggest uh, sort of spirits subscription business in the world, which is great. Very, very cool. And uh, I mean, it's really, really amazing. Huge congratulations to you both. That's amazing. And I mean, how do you feel about the future today? Obviously, I'm sure there are like so many companies who just want to buy you. I'm sure so many other you know liquor companies pitch you ideas to broaden the offering. Like, how do you feel about the future in the next couple of years? Do you want to 10x this um, in the next 10 years? Do you want to sell out? Like, what's your personal kind of passion? I mean, John might, might, might have a different answer, but I, th I think we're aligned that, you know, what ex excites us most is continuing to build the business, uh, to continue to control the business. Uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned that we must have lots of people kind of knocking on the door and that we, we don't actually. And I think that's partly because we've, we've sort of kept our heads down as founders and, and gone about our business reasonably quietly. So that that isn't the case, and and we're we're quite okay with that. So we're very excited about what the future might hold. We think there's lots of growth left in the UK market for gin subscription, but also some of the other things that we're building on behind that. So we launched our e-commerce store last year, and that's growing really nicely. It's now sort of fifteen percent of our revenues. Nice. We bringing some of our own products to market. So MPD is forming an increasing part of that mix uh we have an uh, an event tonight we have almost 2000 people signed up for an online gin tasting event wow. uh tonight at you know 25 pounds a ticket or whatever it is so uh, we think there's lots more to to do in gin and and there's still lots importantly lots and lots of really passionate and talented distillers out there that we've we've yet to work with so that's that's the thing that keeps us keeps us motivated john yeah the what really excites me actually is the at least in the UK for the minute. Um, you know, we've always talked about testing that how how it will work abroad too. That's a, that's another issue. But what excites me mostly is working with the small businesses that we work with because we are building a platform uh, for these small distilleries to get their name out there and to get their gin in, in front of um, well in, into the homes of you know hundred hundred thousand people and tasted by four people per bottle will taste that so you can get your gin tasted by uh, almost half a million people in one month which for a small producer who might make you know, 15 20,000 bottles a year is uh, an incredible opportunity and everything that we build as a company um, what John was just talking about the uh, events uh, which is just a natural evolution of um, of, of having a content-driven business. Events are, are a big part of that, and the e-commerce store and and other ideas that we have in mind to develop in the UK. The family of distillers that we have been building over the past few years are along for the ride in that, and it it is such a busy market now that to a certain degree you could say that Craft Gin Club 
is building its brand and can become somewhat of an umbrella brand for all of these smaller businesses. And the way that we position ourselves is as a, um, the best curator of top quality spirits. And uh, so, which means we're working with the best and most talented distillers. And we do a lot of work behind the scenes to find those distillers. A lot of tasting goes on. So uh, it's, a, it's a tough job. It's, it's one of the toughest parts of the job. Yeah. <laughs> um, weekly gin tastings. Uh, but we, because the market is so busy and we're trying to find the best, uh, most ambitious and most talented distillers uh, that are out there running these small businesses, we, we want them to grow with us uh, and to be able to take advantage of the brand name we're building. So for instance, we have television advertisements with uh, uh, with a, a celebrity brand ambassador. And, and if you're a small business uh, and you can piggyback off of that sort of exposure, it's mm. it's an amazing opportunity. So um, yeah, that that's what excites me the most about uh, the company is, is not just building our own company, but helping other people build their company. So increasingly becoming kind of a platform play, curation-led platform play. Awesome. Yeah. And and I get how big is the company people-wise today? We are almost at 60 people now. Wow. Uh, we should be by 70 by the year end. Uh, that's all ordinarily in our, our, our London HQ. Obviously, people are working remotely still at the moment, but... We're growing, uh, but it's not necessarily a people-intensive model. Uh, you know, I can't imagine we'll ever be at sort of 2,000 people, but uh, we're certainly growing every year and, and hiring some really talented people. And it's, uh, I feel like it's a great place to work. I really enjoy going into the office. I suppose What the difference you... there between our company and yours, Timo, is that um, we don't own the warehouses and the uh, we, we work with a lot of 3PL companies. Mm, uh, makes sense, yeah. So, uh, yeah. What have you learned about, I guess, leadership, culture? Like, what's been like the biggest learning on this journey for you, John B? Culture is incredibly crucial. And it's something that has become apparent as, as we've been building the business. And uh, I'm just thinking to prior jobs I've had, and the company's not really getting it right, not caring. A terrible amount about the well-being or happiness of the of the employees. We definitely have a, a, a very hardworking culture, and but at the same time, we we want to treat everybody like human beings, <laughs> and uh, it's 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 an inherently fun industry to work in because it's around booze. So it's it's not that there are no outlets when uh if, if someone's had a stressful week we <laughs> we're, mm. we're there to help as it were mm -hmm. um but yeah it's been uh you know pre-pandemic the, the office vibe was great uh it's pretty we try to keep the structure pretty flat so it's not you know there's no hierarchy to to run through if you need to get things approved or um yeah i'd say having people own something and feeling like they own part of the business if every individual can own a part of the business and every but everybody is working as a team to achieve the same objective that's been a pretty successful model for our uh for our team culture and yeah just don't be overbearing and micromanaging nobody likes that sort of thing so um uh, we've got a pretty really dedicated really hard working team 
uh, and we we do recognize that, and we we do what we can to to show our appreciation. I mean, one simple thing: everybody on the team gets a gets a gin box every month, uh, for instance. Nice. And uh, John, what do you what do you think about culture? You know, good culture. It's not something that you can enforce. It has to come organically as the organization grows. So as founders, when it comes to culture, I think I think of it more like sort of gardening or farming. You know, you, you can plant the seeds. Uh, you can make sure that there's water and fertilizer. And, and every now and again, you need to pull out a few weeds. But really, you know, it has to grow by itself. Uh, and you're there to nurture it along the way. Uh, so hiring is really important, especially in the early days, uh, to get people in that will add value uh, to culturally, I guess. Uh, that doesn't mean hiring, you know, identical. Every employee is the same. In fact, I think it means the opposite. Uh, but making sure that everybody that comes in will, will, will add something to the puzzle that will become your culture as, as the organization grows. And I think, I think, We've probably done a good job of that uh, without without patting ourselves on the back too hard. I think looking at the team now, they're a great team, a real fun bunch. And I think we've always set out with the view that actually being successful in business doesn't mean you can't have fun in business. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh, and we've set out to have a lot of laughs along the way, uh, you know, take our work seriously, but not take ourselves seriously. And I think that's reflected in the company now. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and it's been, uh, with as for any company, it's probably been difficult during the past year with the pandemic. But uh, we can even I, I love we every every morning we have a team huddle. You know, last five minutes some days uh, just to just to check in with everybody and uh, and find out how a few people are doing. And we ask things. Uh, what do we have? Thankful Thursdays and. Uh, uh, nice. where, where people t- tell us about something they've, they're thankful for and wellness Wednesdays where people, uh, somebody, a few people will share uh, things that they do that keeps them either mentally or physically fit. To me, it's been great to see uh, our, our team members aren't really um, intimidated by sharing. And, and to me, that says a lot uh, that everybody can kind of come out of their bubble and share without feeling like they're being judged or, uh, or, uh, um, you know, from, from far from team members, it's, it is, uh, quite an open, uh, and transparent culture. Uh, and we do have a lot of fun. There's a lot of banter, even on those five minute, uh, morning calls, a lot of smiling faces. So it's, uh, just even that over the past year has been really encouraging to, to see that office culture get translated into everybody who's sitting in their bedroom and at their kitchen table by themselves, uh, it's it's crucial absolutely crucial yeah i mean it sounds like you guys built some really amazing conditions for people to to win and i love the thankfulness thursday and the wellness wednesday i'm so going to copy that um that's awesome um thank you so much both of you uh for joining really really fun absolute pleasure timo thanks for having us yeah thank you very much timo